I can tell you honestly that while I've experienced profound grief in the past, there are dimensions of it that are based in how much joy you once had and the meaning of the memories you shared. When my mother died, I was 18. She had been in the hospital with a heart condition likely caused by smoking. and They had tried a procedure that was experimental at the time. I was in the basement of our house when my dad came home. I came upstairs. He stood in the middle of the room with the posture of a beaten prize fighter. He looked at me and said, We lost your mom. My world slipped. His tears blurred my vision and he hugged me as if he were in a storm, because he was. We both were. We cried for a long time. My mother was absolutely brilliant and taught me to be self-taught. I learned after she was gone that learning the hard way makes you take yourself less seriously, but it certainly takes longer. Mistakes take time. I also learned a sort of kindness that I could not from my father. It was shaped differently. Her actual heart was weakened from a bout with polio, but her emotional heart was, for me, a warm nightlight when you were afraid, always there. She only lived to be 48 years old. She was patient with me, more than anyone since. It's not surprising, I suppose, that I think of her often, more than 50 years since her passing, and the grief of losing her still makes me cry which reminds me how almost in absolute proportion my love for her matches my sense of loss. My father lived to be 94, and while near the end we did not talk much, I knew he loved me. I knew he was proud of me. He was a wonderful man who gave me many real and intangible gifts, but his way of dealing with stress was to go golfing or fishing, to literally be gone, which he was a lot during my life. When he died, I heard about it on the phone. I was sad, of course, but his was a life lived his way. It was time. I miss him for his humor, his wisdom, and even temperament. Everything I try to be. So the grief is felt when I hear myself laugh, echoing his own, or jangle my keys to hurry others up when it's time to go, or when I make a joke out of a word. I'm reminded in those moments how he shaped me. My friend Ron Chavis was a hugely talented man whose deep baritone voice made him a perfect fit for radio. He knew how to use it in ways that sold products, motivated people, and made you pay attention, which is why he had the number one radio show in Pittsburgh, a feat he replicated in Dallas, Texas a few years later. He left Seattle in 1979, asking me to drop his car off at the credit agency. Ron was a brilliant, well-read, funny, curious, and very capable guy. I never saw him again in person. But many nights he would call me, sometimes to check in, other times to pour his heart out about how broken up he was over his divorce or other misfortunes. I was always happy to listen. We worked on a campaign for a man running for the mayor's job in McKeesport, PA, one year, which turned out to be successful, and a campaign for a Pittsburgh law firm through those years, he seemed like a guy who lived across town, a good close friend. Ron had said he was vaccinated. And for a guy in his 60s, 
That's a good idea. Then he posted on Facebook that he had gotten COVID. I heard nothing more for two weeks till his son posted on Ron's Facebook page that he had died unexpectedly. Shocking news like that just drains your energy. You feel the echoes and regrets of thoughts and promises and plans unfulfilled. I met Tom Meyer at a party, and he was so impressive, I felt stupid around him. He was handsome, worldly, funny, fearless, and brilliant, a force of nature. I got to know him better, and those impressions only grew stronger. When he would travel, he would share his adventures in long, handwritten letters that only made his legend grow. As the year 2000 approached, he and I shared some apprehension about the potential problems that might happen. In the end, it cost well over $100 billion to fix Y2K, but he saw it as time to leave town. He moved to Sedona, Arizona. After that, our contact was sporadic. But in his last 10 years, he reached out frequently online, in the mail, and on the phone. And often, he'd come back to Seattle and sleep on our couch for a few days. Those times were marked by a kind of concentrated joy you only feel when the meaning of the time spent is recognized as irreplaceable. It's a hundred sugar cubes in your Kool-Aid. Too sweet, but you can't stop drinking it. So when I got the phone call that his obituary was published, I collapsed. It hurt then and now in a way that was like all my nerve endings were protesting. It's a scream you can't express. So the tears just melt out of me at unexpected times. I have no idea what this kind of grief does to a body, but the low energy, blurred vision, chest pains, and sleeplessness is not helping. Finally, my younger brother Scott was always my favorite brother. I have four, since he was so talented, so clever, so positive and independent. When I learned he had stage four cancer and was headed to hospice, it was the kind of news you go through the stages with. Denial, negotiation, anger, and all the rest returning to all of them from time to time. Even now, I have an ocean of regrets and likely always will. A sense of the unfairness of cancer and the feeling of being denied joy. Those tears are tinged with bitter acceptance and of wanting to blame someone or something. It's a theme I don't want to carry around. So each of these experiences has had their own effect. I don't feel wiser or any kind of improvement. That's not what grief does, of course. But I do feel a stronger sense of urgency to do the maximum good, feel the maximum love, and to live my life the way I want to. Death is the ultimate reminder to live.